Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that will help you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. Together, for you. Welcome to episode 61 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key, and I'm super excited that you're here. I am a family physician and an obesity medicine physician, and I am a weight loss coach for physicians. So I help other physicians who feel totally exhausted and overwhelmed by not seeing the results they want in their weight loss or in changing their eating behaviors. And we work together to get to a point where they have lasting change in their weight and their eating behaviors. But not only that, it's done with a sense of ease without relying on willpower, without white knuckling it through the urges. I know that sounds amazing, but it really actually is. Like I love seeing when uh, my clients start to get that change where all of a sudden things become simple and easy. If that's something that you would like for yourself, the best way is to head on over to weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca, click on the work with me tab, and schedule a free introductory session. So that gives you a chance to actually speak to me one-on-one over video conferencing, where we can talk about what you would need and how I can best help you get to that place of ease and making the changes that you know you want to make, but without relying on willpower and being able to do it even in your busiest weeks, which is, again, super amazing when we get to that point. Now, my spaces are limited, so if this is interesting to you and if this sounds like something that you could really benefit from, then make sure you click over and book your free introductory session now to make sure you've got one reserved for yourself. All right, today we are talking weight loss medications, or the proper term for them are anti-obesity medications. And we haven't done a a talk about medications on this uh, show yet. And partly that's because I think there's so many other things that are more easily accessible for a lot of people. Um, But I do think it's a really important topic to talk about. I do think there's a lot of stigma around uh, anti-obesity medications. And I think we need to talk about that and open it up and get rid of the stigma. And as you'll hear in today's interview, Really, the best way to think about anti-obesity medications is that they're another tool in your toolbox. So they're not the be-all and end-all. They're not miracle drugs for most people, but they help. Uh, If you're really struggling, sometimes a medication can make the difference to give you that little bit extra help. Uh, But I also think that they're not a replacement for all the other stuff. So The best treatment for obesity, which as we know is a chronic condition, a chronic medical condition, is to treat it from multiple aspects. So we talk about how you eat and what you should eat, medications are a choice, Uh, exercise can help, uh, though again isn't the miracle uh, fix that we often would like it to be. Uh, And then the mindset, which I believe, as you know, is a really, really big piece. So working on our brains around food and the cravings and what we think about food so that we are empowered and can stay focused even when life pulls us in multiple directions. And so the best management of weight long term is to make use of as many tools as you feel you need. And medications are definitely one of those tools. There are limitations. As you know, I practice in Canada, so our availability is much lower of what is actually approved and available in Canada compared to the United States. Uh, And the biggest limitation I find for my obesity medicine patients that I work with is cost to these medications. They're not uh, cheap. And unfortunately, I think there's also a lot of stigma around how these medications are covered uh, in Canada. Some... uh, extended health plans or like third-party plans will cover them. Um, But in general, the government doesn't. So people who don't have one of those plans that covers it don't have an option to get uh, these medications covered for what is a medical condition and is recognized as a really difficult to treat chronic condition for some people. That's me on my soapbox. (laughs) That's one of my biggest pet peeves right now. And it's on my list to write a bunch of letters about All right, all that aside, 
Today's interview is with Dr. Richa Mithel, who is an obesity medicine physician and internal medicine physician down in Dallas, Texas. She can be found at radianthealthdallas.com or at Richa Mithel MD, which is R I C H A M I T H E L M D. I found this interview really interesting because I always knew there's differences between our countries about what's available and how much things cost, but uh, it's really significant differences. So I think, you know, the options if you're living in the States um, versus Canada are quite different. But also, the as you'll hear in the interview, the costs are actually quite different too. Um, and I always, like I said, think of the cost being relatively high on a monthly basis for my patients. Uh, but as you'll hear, there's also significant cost differences between the two countries, which I wasn't quite so aware of. Anyways, I think because we're talking more of a medical type topic, it's important to remind you that this is for educational purposes only. This interview and the contents of this episode are not to replace medical advice. If you are interested in own obesity medicine, you need to seek out somebody knowledgeable about prescribing them and have a discussion with your own physician. Listening to this episode does not constitute instituting a physician-patient relationship. All right, let's get to the interview. Here's Dr. Mithel. All right, so Risha, welcome to the show. How are you today? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me. So can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what your background is? Sure. So I'm an internal medicine doctor, and I'm also board certified in obesity medicine. I uh, had a lot of experience practicing general medicine in the hospital and outpatient setting over the years. And then uh, two years ago, I decided to focus my practice uh, purely on weight management and really coming from the perspective of the fact that within our healthcare system, we have not been focusing enough on prevention. And so my goal was to really try to uh, get to the root cause of so many uh, medical issues that we're facing in our society today. And that led me to opening my own practice um, in September of 2019. It was one year. And I have a membership-based um, integrative approach to uh, my practice, and I focus purely on uh, prevention and weight management, and I serve as a consultant to other physicians in the area, including primary care. And um, it's been amazing. It's, um, it's very rewarding, and I get to see people uh, really changing their lives, and um, it's, it's an honor to be a part of that journey. Yeah, that's so cool. Uh, so what we were going to talk about today is anti-obesity medications, and that's something I haven't uh, really talked about yet on the, the podcast. Uh, and so I thought what we could start with is just talking about the concept, because I think for a lot of people that term like obesity medication or taking medication to manage their weight or eating uh, is loaded with kind of extra layers of meaning and in some areas some stigma and bias. And so- sure. So, you know, firstly, I think that we need to look at um, obesity and problems with overweight um, as a chronic medical issue. And I think when we look at things from a medical perspective and we identify it as such, it takes away a lot of the blame and the guilt and kind of the shame or whatever, you know, emotions someone may be feeling who's been dealing with this particular issue. Um, and it takes really a multifaceted approach to really um, address it from all angles so that the person is kind of put into a position of being able to successfully lose the weight and then maintain that weight loss. So number one is uh, identifying it as a medical issue, which it is finally identified as such even by the American Medical Association, which sadly only happened a few years ago. Um, secondly, uh, we need to look at it as a tool. Um, it's not a, you know, sometimes people look at it as a, an easy way out or a last resort or something like that. But really, it's just one more tool in addition to nutrition, exercise, mindset, um, stress management, sleep. And, and in my practice, and I think uh, for many of us who, who 
who do this, we really have to look at all angles of what is affecting a person's health. And medication is one of those tools that warrants a discussion. Um, and there should not be a stigma attached to it. We take medication for many other chronic issues. Uh, for example, if someone has high blood pressure, we're not going to tell them, well, you know, you should be able to just manage this on your own. Um, often it does require the combination of lifestyle modifications in addition to medication. Um, and so I think that those are two really important uh, issues to identify right away. And then looking at medication and the use, a lot of times people um, will ask the question, well, is this something that I'm going to need to be on for the rest of my life? And, and that's a great question. And I can't always answer that right away. But I do think that when we're using it, um, you know, we can think of it in, in the short term and then have that discussion as we get closer to um, the management or transition time when we're formulating a plan for, for weight maintenance. Um, often medication is going to be a part of that. And it might be the medication that we were using during the acute weight loss phase, or it might be a different one. Um, or it might be that we have a trial off and we're employing many strategies to maintain the weight loss. And then if we're running into the situation where we're regaining the weight, then it warrants a discussion at that time. Again, with the understanding that it's not a personal failing, but that we need to make sure all the strategies for nutrition and lifestyle and habits, all of those are in place. And if it's still not enough, then we need to be open to using the medication as a tool, again, with the paradigm of it's a chronic medical issue and often requires ongoing treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where most of the evidence sits is that for most people, they probably need to keep going with it. But I have a similar discussion with my patients that you do that just like I do with an antidepressant is, you know, once things are going well, and once you're kind of at the weight that you want to be, we can try backing off on it and just see what happens for you. Because I, you know, I do believe when you've gone through that path, even like if you've used a medication you've generally done so many other things in your general life and your lifestyle and your day-to-day -day days to lose the weight that the ver the person you are when you've lost the weight is a little bit different from the person you are that when you started. And so sometimes giving that new person a chance and just see what happens. Um, but I always, I, similar to you, I always talk about you, there is a chance that you will decide that the medication is actually really helping and is a good long-term strategy. Uh, for you to stay on. Um, yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, also, I didn't mention, but, you know, the concept of the set point in the brain that's determined by the hypothalamus. Um, and, you know, that in conjunction with the hormonal changes um, and slowing of metabolism as we lose weight, you know, all of those things, identifying those as players in those factors that lead to weight regain is important for a person to understand. And, and I always have that discussion because again, those things are real and they're going to contribute. And we see um, even patients who have had bariatric procedures or gastric bypass or sleep gastrectomy who often do need to utilize medication, you know, long-term as a strategy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so let's talk about like other barriers that people might encounter when they're trying to uh, access or thinking about accessing an anti-obesity medication. Uh, like for us, uh, we talked about this briefly before we started recording in Canada. Uh, it's very difficult to get anything covered. So cost is often a big barrier. Like we have limited medications that are um, approved in Canada and generally right now they're running in about $300 a month. Um, and so you, that's a significant limitation for a lot of the people I personally work with. How about you guys in the States? Yes, that is true. Um, I do think that we have a few more options um, available to us that are uh, less of a cost. Um, so number one, the barrier can be um, just, you know, 
we'll, we'll talk about cost in a moment, but just getting our minds wrapped around the fact that we potentially need medication. Um, and just to briefly tell people, uh, BMI of 27 um, and above with a comorbidity um, is a qualification for anti-obesity medication um, or a BMI over 30. So sometimes that can be a barrier because we might have somebody who uh, is perhaps having some metabolic complications, um, even just uh, with a BMI of less than 27, but we do, we do adhere to those criteria um, when prescribing medication. Uh, regarding cost, a lot of times our treatment plan will need to uh, take that into account and um, it, it requires the process of prior authorizations with insurance plans. Um, often we'll know that certain insurers or certain um, companies have opted for coverage of anti-obesity medication. And often there is coverage, but it's uh, a approach of figuring out which anti-obesity medication that particular company has opted for within that insurance plan. So there is this barrier of the legwork that has to be done on both ends, the patient and myself, to kind of figure out uh, which medication is covered. And of course, that needs to be used in the context of the patient's medical history and whether it's appropriate to use or not. And if that's the root cause of their issues. So all the different medications that are approved, we have four that are approved for long-term use, uh, Belvique, Liraglutide, Qsimia, and, um, oh gosh, I'm blinking on the fourth one right now. Contrave. Uh, yes, thank you, Contrave. Can we so, just, uh, just for people listening who don't have the obesity medicine background, can we just say what each of those are? Sure. So uh, Qsimia is a combination of fentramine and topiramate, uh, which was initially used as an anti-seizure medication, as we know. Um, Belvic is a 5-HT, it's a serotonin receptor. Uh, it, it works at that, in the, at that level in the hypothalamus. Uh, Liraglutide is, um, the brand name here is Saxenda, and it is a, a GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide uh, 1 receptor agonist. It's also known as Victoza when it's used for treatment of type 2 diabetes. And then we commonly use two weekly injectable GLP-1 receptor agonists and here they're called Trulicity and Ozempic. And those are approved for use in type 2 diabetes. Um, and I am able to get coverage for that if a person qualifies for metabolic syndrome. And then the last one. Um, Contrave. <laughs> why do I keep forgetting Contrave? I will tell you why I keep forgetting Contrave in a moment. It comes to side effects. Um, so Contrave is a combination of naltrexone and Welbutrin. Yeah. And so those are the four medications um, that are approved for long-term use. Um, I will tell you that there are a couple other tools in our toolbox that we do use in treatment of, of, of obesity. And uh, one of those is metformin. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, fentramine, which is an appetite suppressant. Um, and it's not approved for uh, long-term use, although in the form of Qsimia it is. Nice. So just to give the sort of Canadian version of what we have, uh, so we don't have anything different than you, but we're limited to uh, the GLP-1 uh, receptor agonists. So Lyraglutide or Saxenda Victoza is the most commonly used. Um, and then we have, do have Contrave, but we've only had it for a couple of years now, maybe three years. And Orlistat, which you didn't mention, and we can talk about probably why. <laughs> That's right. I never use it. <laughs> yeah. I always forget it when I'm thinking about. And then Vyvanse, uh, which is approved in Canada for treatment of binge eating disorder. Yes, that is approved here as well for, for binge eating. All right. So, oh, you were going to talk about cost. Sorry. I distracted Right. Myself. So as far as cost is concerned, um, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are the most expensive. Um, if somebody does not have coverage, it's pretty much prohibitive to use. It's about $1,500 a month um, out-of-pocket expense here in the United States. That's and, for um, Sixenda too? 
Yes, uh, maybe about 1,200 or so. Uh, oh, sometimes okay. I've I'll heard stop whining about the 300. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I've actually been told before, maybe look into a Canadian pharmacy to get that medication for a patient. Um, so that's very difficult here to, to use um, if it's not covered. Yeah. Um, as I was mentioning, the, in the form of Saxenda is what it's approved for, for long-term use of, uh, of obesity. Um, many of my patients uh, do uh, hit uh, criteria for metabolic syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, with their hypertension, hyper, uh, dyslipidemia, um, any sign of insulin resistance, increased waist size. And then we're able to utilize the um, injectable versions that are either daily or weekly, which is Victoza or the Trulicity and Ozempic. And that is uh, usually covered by their insurance. And we do have a uh, there's a prescription uh, savings coupon that those uh, two drug companies, uh, Novo Nordisk and uh, Lilly, they do um, offer those, and people are able to get it covered for about twenty five dollars a month sometimes. Okay, so that's not bad. But it, it, um, well, you know, like we always hear that the prices are different, but I don't think I realized the prices were that different. Like that's a a crazy difference between the two countries. But okay, um, and then you said you were going to mention something about contrave and why you always forget it but why don't we go through um kind of like why don't we go through the different options that a person might have and kind of the some of the ins and outs of each of them and when we get to contrave you can talk about your experience and stuff with it yes definitely so you know when i when i meet with somebody and i'm doing their medical evaluation obviously we're getting a thorough medical history to better understand what's going on with them medically speaking but i'm also going through a checklist in my mind as far as um, which medications might have contraindications which ones might be a better uh, fit for the uh, root cause of whatever is going on with this person Um, and so you know initially we talk about um, any contraindications and so all the different medication classes do have certain contraindications or uh, things that we need to be aware of if we're going to be prescribing cautions you could say so uh, if we go kind of go through each one fentramine is one that um, is luckily very affordable for most people even um, out of pocket it's just uh, maybe anywhere from I've seen two dollars to about fifteen dollars a month um, generic, and uh, there is a brand name version of fentramine now called Lomira, which is an mm. eight milligram uh, tablet, and that one can be uh, broken up to just before meals, and often uh, people might uh, have less side effects from it, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment, but. Um, those uh, medications typically are the Lomira typically requires prior authorization and won't be covered unless we've tried the generic. So regarding um, the process of figuring out whether someone should be using fentermine um, for people who uh, you know, have maybe a lot of cravings or maybe cost is prohibitive as far as all the other medication uh, drug classes. I'll, I'll often talk about using fentramine. Uh, we do have to uh, proceed with caution with, um, with anybody who uh, has um, closed ankle glaucoma, um, a- any kind of arrhythmias, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, active heart disease, um, I don't uh, use that medication uh, for those people. Also, uh, Graves' disease or hyperthyroidism, we don't utilize that medication. Uh, Typically, uh, you know, there's some talk about whether every single person who is going to be on fentramine needs an EKG, but you definitely want to at least uh, know that they don't have any um, other medications that could be affecting their uh, QT interval or um, they're not, um, you know, somebody who has a family history of significant uh, cardiac arrhythmias or something like that. Uh, Although, um, you know, those sound kind of scary, it's pretty well tolerated by most people. Um, I usually start at a a very low dose, so um, the lowest possible 
here in the United States is, is the 15 milligram capsule or a 37.5 milligram tablet. I can usually cut the, the tablet in half. The capsule cannot be cut in half. So uh, patients will usually uh, use those um, either once a day or twice a day. Most common side effects with the fentermine are uh, dry mouth, uh, palpitations. We do have to um, use caution in, in people who have high blood pressure, obviously. Uh, it is a stimulant. And so um, I always screen people for their blood pressure. But then if they have any uh, history of hypertension and they're on medications, I typically have them checking their blood pressure to make sure that it's well controlled while they're on it. And really using the lowest dose possible. Um, insomnia is a common side effect. And so avoiding taking it late in the day. So those are just just for fentramine alone. Yeah. Um, when fentramine works for people, how do they describe it? Like, do they just feel less interested in food or what's the patient? The less person? interested. And I would say that most people are a little bit amazed at the fact that they really just aren't thinking about food and just aren't very hungry. Mm -hmm. Um, Fentramine is one that uh, kind of helps to kickstart weight loss. It does increase the basal metabolic rate a little bit in the beginning, in addition to the um, uh, appetite suppression. I think a lot of times people feel like they have a lot of energy in the beginning. Those symptoms do typically kind of wane off um, as far as the effects. But I would say the most common thing is that for the people who it's working for, will just say, wow, I was just amazed. I just, I just really didn't want such and such, which was maybe a bit unusual for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, next one. What would, what's the next one you want to talk about? Yeah, so let's talk about the GLP-1 receptor agonists. Those are a favorite. Um, and they're a favorite because, uh, number one, if, if it's a patient uh, that has uh, any signs of insulin resistance, so maybe if they're showing signs of being pre-diabetic, um, or obviously if they have diabetes, if they have metabolic syndrome. And then often uh, in my practice, I actually look for um, earlier signs of, of insulin resistance. So I do check fasting insulin levels mm -hmm. to look for um, the HOMA IR calculation to look for, for basically evidence of insulin resistance, or if they have a prior personal history of gestational diabetes or polycystic ovarian syndrome or a strong family history of diabetes, then often that person is going to be somebody who has this condition. And so the uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist, the main uh, screening criteria is you want to make sure that you're getting a good family history. Um, it is contraindicated in people who have a family history of MEN2 syndrome or any family history of thyroid medullary cancer. You also want to screen for people who've had a history of pancreatitis um, because it is contraindicated in those people, or at least you want to be watching them very closely. Um, you know, uh, the most common side effect that uh, we see with the GLP-1 receptor agonist is abdominal pain um, and nausea. Uh, I do have patients that complain of constipation as well. And that's part of it is due to the mechanism of action. It delays uh, stomach emptying. Um, it also works on receptors in the hypothalamus um, on the weight loss pathway, which is the POMC pathway in our hypothalamus. So there are some receptors there. Um, and it mimics a hormone that's released by our small intestines in response to when we eat. So it leads to satiety and fullness um, in addition to the delayed gastric emptying. And then it also helps insulin by the incretin effect. So, you know, it's working in a lot of different ways, um, and it's working in particularly well, obviously, in the population that I just described of people who have problems with insulin resistance. Um, the other thing that we have to keep in mind when using the GLP-1 receptor agonist is that um, it does have any uh, prescriber's information. You do need to stop it two months prior to a person uh, conceiving. So if you have somebody who's who's um, younger of childbearing age, then um, that's always in the back of my mind. Right. Um, it's not known to cause birth defects, but um, it's something that we want it to not have in their system if they're gonna be conceiving. 
so those are, um, you know, kind of the main highlights for uh, what you look for as far as if a person uh, is going to be benefit from a GLP-1 and if they have contraindications to it. I have had one patient who uh, really benefited from Trulicity and he wasn't uh, kind of hitting a plateau with Phentermine and he was very hesitant to try the medications that work more psychotropically. Um, and so we, uh, he had great success with Trulicity, but he ended up in the ER a few times, well, twice with abdominal pain. And it was really nonspecific. He had no signs of pancreatitis. His CT was completely normal. Um, and I had to break it to him like after the second time and say, you know, we really can't continue this medication. And um, unfortunately, that is a, a potential side effect um, that, you know, uh, can cause you to have to look for an alternative medication. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, I haven't um, used the weekly ones uh, very much yet, but have you noticed a difference in... Um, like any effectiveness between doing it daily or weekly, or is it really just down to the convenience of just having to give yourself an injection once a week? I think that convenience is a big factor. I will also say that more people have coverage for the weekly one because of their metabolic, metabolic syndrome, syndrome. Nice. than the people who have coverage for the daily um, injectable with Saxenda. Um, in the uh, looking at weight loss uh, data, Ozempic has the most weight loss, which is the weekly um, GLP-1, um, compared to Victoza, which is the daily injectable, which is equivalent to Saxenda. So I've found better weight loss with that, but honestly, it really often comes down to how can we get coverage yeah. um, for the drug class. All right, and next the one. Next one uh, the next one, I'm not going to forget, is Contrave. <laughs> so, um, so Contrave, again, is the combination of the naltrexone and the Wellbutrin. And so when we're, you know, again, meeting with a person and trying to figure out, uh, you know, which medication uh, comes to mind, uh, Contrave uh, is working at the level of the hypothalamus and uh, related to dopamine release. And so in people who have a lot of that uh, food and reward type of um, uh, picture going on, uh, for those people, um, often I will uh, think of Contrave. Um, Contrave, luckily, is relatively affordable compared to the other uh, medications um, like the GLP ones. Uh, Contrave in the, in the United States, their program, if it's uh, covered by insurance, it's typically 99 a month and it's 119 a month if it's not covered. So That's pretty much they're making it pretty affordable for people. Um, yeah, so Contrave is cheaper in for you guys than it is for us. I think with the really? company program, it brings it down to two fifty, I believe, or roughly around there. Here, wow! So yeah. interesting, just the the difference again. Yeah, I didn't know that. So we definitely um, have that as an option, um, even if you know they're not uh, getting coverage through their insurance for it. Uh, with Contrave, a uh, couple things because there are two medications involved. So obviously we need to uh, be thinking about the um, contraindications for both of those. So uh, naltrexone, obviously if they're going to be having any kind of uh, surgical procedures or anything coming up, um, you know, the opioids are not going to be effective if they're on naltrexone. So uh, it's always good to just kind of think about that or make the person aware of that. Um, most common side effect with naltrexone is nausea. Um, with Wellbutrin, uh, you know, obviously you have to screen for any kind of pre-existing seizure disorders. We don't want to be giving that because it can lower the seizure threshold. If there's somebody who have um, a history of binging and purging, uh, we don't want to be using that because um, electrolyte abnormalities related to the purging could uh, set them up for, again, risk of a seizure with the use of Wellbutrin. Um, Wellbutrin, obviously, using it in conjunction with other antidepressants, we have to use caution there. Uh, it's not contraindicated, but um, 
you know, there is a warning for suicidal risk uh, with use of Wellbutrin, especially in somebody who has had depression or been on other antidepressants. Uh, you have to watch blood pressure with uh, Wellbutrin as well. It can increase blood pressure um, and it can also increase the heart rate. So uh, not necessarily uh, predisposing to arrhythmias, but we see that often that a person's uh, heart rate will be increased with the uh, so those are the main uh, kind of contraindications or things that I think about with use of um, those two medications. Um, like I said, the cost isn't too bad. You know, I've had a lot of patients that uh, I think the number one reason for having to stop Contrave is the side effects. Mm -hmm. So uh, nausea is a big one with that. And then also just kind of the activation, so perhaps some insomnia and things like that. I think that the best option is to go really slow with increasing the dose. Um, the manufacturer recommends a four-week period of increasing the medication. So we start with one pill in the morning, and then the next week you go to one in the morning, one in the evening, and so on and so forth. But I've found that sometimes you have to go even slower than that. Yeah, um, to really be able to tolerate the medication. And um, unfortunately, I have had to discontinue the medication because of nausea. Um, sometimes things like paresthesias have occurred as well, but um, you know, not necessarily uh, a seizure, but I have seen some neurologic things like that too. Yeah, my experience has been similar in that um, a, a decent percentage of the people I try it with don't end up tolerating it. Yes, and then we switch. I, I agree with that, <laughs> and um, it is uh, kind of a frustrating process because it, it's true that you know nine um, about a hundred dollars is not that cheap either. So when a person's you know spent that money and then they're not able to tolerate it, it can be frustrating. Um, but often, if that's um, something that I feel is going on, as far as the uh, reward mechanism, or if they don't have coverage for other options, then, you know, uh, often I will go to it. But like I said, the reason why I kind of forget about it sometimes is it's not a uh, first line in my mind often because of the side effect profile that I've seen. Right. Um, and uh, Belvique is one that... Um, so Belvique's Lucasterin, right? Uh, yes, yes, Lorcazarin. Um, I don't use it that often. And I was curious in your uh, practice in Canada, is that one that you guys utilize a lot? We don't have access to it. It's okay. one that's not approved in Canada. So I, I don't have any personal experience with it. I written, okay. like I know about it through my obesity medicine uh, conferences and certification, right? But Yes. And that's most of my knowledge about Lorcazarin only because um, I know that in, in head to heads, as far as comparison of weight loss, it has the least amount. Um, you do have to be cautious with using it with antidepressants due to um, serotonin syndrome risk. And, um, you know, I, 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 I find that often the other medications are going to give me better results. So I haven't really used it very often. Um, mm -hmm. I have had some people who have come to me who've tried it in the past and um, said that it didn't really work very well or didn't do much for them. Okay. And then uh, I'm blanking on the... Cusimia. I yeah, think we Cusimia. haven't talked about Cusimia yet. Again, we don't have access. We have access to... Because Cusimia... Oh, it's, it's pyramine um, and topiramate? Oh. That's right. Fentramine okay. and topiramate. Um, so, you know, we do have... Um, data it's a 52 week trial that was used to um get the approval for kissimia so it is approved for long-term use um i've had people who uh, have had pretty good results with it but first let's talk about kind of in my mind who are the people that um you know i don't want to be using it or who mm -hmm. i want to be using it in so we already talked about fentramine and uh, so the same contraindications are there or Qsimia, as far as the fentramine goes. So topiramate, the biggest thing that goes on in my mind when I'm thinking about using it even, 
is the fact that it is a teratogen. It can cause fetal cleft palate abnormalities. And so any woman of childbearing age, um, it's, not all, it's not my first line, but I will have the discussion with them if I think that uh, they have coverage for it or that if it's a good option. Um, we have to ensure that the person, first of all, has a pregnancy test at baseline and then monthly. Um, and of course, they need to be on a very reliable form of birth control and with a good understanding that, you know, it can cause uh, malformations in the fetus. Um, other than that, uh, topiramate um, is um, also going to potentially cause drowsiness. So a lot of times we uh, have the person... Uh, you know, well, so first off, we're using Qsimia alone. Um, it has uh, three different doses. We usually start with the lowest dose. Um, but uh, sometimes people will complain of drowsiness. And then the other thing to make people aware of is that it can cause uh, problems with uh, word finding. And so if they're having any kind of cognitive effects from it, which are luckily not permanent, um, but the uh, person does need to know to look out for that. And if it's happening, then, you know, obviously they're not going to want to continue that medication. Um, also, if you get to the level where the total dose of topiramate is more than 50 milligrams in a day, then you cannot stop the medication suddenly as it can. Uh, well, the warnings are that it can precipitate a seizure that probably comes more from data on it being used as an anti-epileptic drug, mm -hmm. um, but typically then we taper the medication rather than stopping it. Those are kind of the um, highlights on uh, contraindications for uh, use of Kissimia. Uh, as far as who is a good candidate for it, um, it's it's just another tool. So we have to kind of look at the person and if they're if they don't have those contraindications. Um, and uh, we want something uh, more than the fentramine. So a lot of times it might be what we started with fentramine and the person is perhaps hitting a plateau or um, they're not, uh, you know, quite feeling the effects anymore. We might switch to Qsimia or uh, we might add topiramate separately to see if the Qsimia and the additive effect um, with, the type, with the topiramate might be helpful. Uh, topiramate is often used off-label for uh, binge eating type of behavior, mm -hmm. not approved for binge eating disorder alone. That is, of course, like you mentioned, Vyvanse. But um, a lot of times if we're seeing someone uh, who has that type of um, behavior or a binge type of uh, behavior, then topiramate can be helpful with that. And uh, one of the common side effects that I didn't mention is the change in taste of certain foods. Mm. Um, so a lot of times people will say that the taste of soda has changed for them. So maybe you might think of it in terms of somebody who has kind of a soda addiction or someone with a lot of sweet um, uh, cravings. Uh, you know, I had patients who go, I just looked at the cookie and I had a bite and I didn't want any more of it. And so uh, you do see that kind of effect with, uh, with the use of Qsimia. Yeah. And so do you use it very often or is it kind of like one of your lower line choices when? You know, I have a lot of women of childbearing age in my practice. And mm. so I think, you know, for that reason, a lot of times it's not uh, one that's ideal from that uh, standpoint. And, and, you know, I think that, um, I would say that it's probably in the middle as far as how often I'm, I'm, I'm using it. It's more often than the, than the contrary. Right. And then next one, would that be Vyvanse or? Yeah, let's do Vyvanse before Orlistat. Yeah. So as far as Vyvanse is concerned, um, you know, it is a, a medication that is in the, um, uh, stimulant drug class. And so it's going to have some of the same uh, contraindications as a person that we're thinking about using fentramine in. Um, when I have a person that I think has um, 
a binge eating disorder, I usually refer them to a uh, not only a psychiatrist, but I want them to be in some kind of formal uh, therapy program with um, a specialist who treats eating disorders. And um, I personally usually have the psychiatrist uh, do the prescribing of the medication uh, for, for the use of Vyvanse um, in conjunction with what I'm doing with the patient. Um, because I think that um, they really need to be under kind of a formal uh, guidance with that, not only because of side effects, but we really want to make sure that we're treating the eating disorder because it's not really about the weight in that situation. Um, that's secondary. Uh, so I find that... Um, you know, it's pretty well tolerated for the patients who are on it. Uh, similar side effects as far as uh, insomnia effects, uh, you know, increase in heart rate, palpitations, the importance of watching blood pressure. Um, uh, cost can be prohibitive depending on a person's insurance plan. And I've honestly seen very wide ranging costs <laughs> related to all the different um, stimulant uh, medications in that drug class. Um, but usually it's a couple hundred if it's going to be out of pocket. Um, I did have one patient who told me that uh, for her, it was going to be in the $700 a month range, which was huge variation. Yeah. 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 Here, I don't know it exactly, but I feel like it's more in the sort of 50 to a hundred dollar range. So it's, uh, lower costs than some of our other options. Interesting yeah. that such, there's such a wide variation. We, there's quite a bit of variation there. So speaking from a Canadian perspective, I do use Vyvanse more because there's nobody else that treats binge eating disorder. So even our eating disorder clinics, I think it will change and locally I think ours um, might change. But currently in our province, the binge eating or the eating disorders clinics generally don't treat binge eating disorder which is a huge that's amazing to me yeah yeah that that and that's very hard because I know you need to be able to kind of have a team of people that are addressing all this person's needs totally yeah and that's the ideal situation right um I don't think it, it other I can't speak to other provinces but in BC I don't think that happens very often so it's a really um you know I think it's a group of of patients and people that are like undertreated and underserved in our, our current medical system. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, but and yes, then we have Orlistat. <laughs> which I have, you know what, I think I was going to say I've never prescribed it, but I'm pretty sure as a resident, I may have prescribed it. People back, that was our only option in Canada for a long time. And I'm pretty sure people came in asking for it but I have no large success stories to tell you. <laughs> yeah, luckily I haven't been in a position where I've had to recommend it because we yeah. I came into the treatment of obesity and overweight after we had some other tools in our pocket. But um, I know that patients, uh, so there's two versions of Orlistat available in the US market. There's the over-the-counter version, um, which is a lower dose, and the prescription version. And so a lot of times I've had people come to my practice who've tried it on their own. Um, it basically uh, blocks fat absorption. And so it causes a lot of very unpleasant gastrointestinal symptoms like flatulence and greasy stools and um, that oily anal leakage, I believe. Anal is. leakage. Yeah. I luckily oh, haven't seen that one, but I do remember reading that. So, you know, that's just not something that you, I, I mean, I guess in a way if there's certain foods that you eat and you're taking that medication, that negative feedback might be enough to change some behaviors. But I, I, I just don't think that that's something we need to be doing to people. Um, it can cause, uh, malabsorption of fat soluble vitamins um it can uh you know cause a lot of unpleasant symptoms there so we mm -hmm. don't use it um the 
I'm not sure what the cost is of the generic one that's over the counter. I think it might be 20 or $30. That sounds kind of familiar to me. And the prescription one, like I said, I haven't prescribed it because it's just not something that um, is my go-to. Um, uh, the next one that we uh, have on the horizon as far as an option for uh, treating patients, and this is actually going to be approved by the FDA even for a BMI over 25, so people who have overweight but not obesity, um, and it's called Plenity, uh, and it is basically a hydrogel um, that will form a matrix in the stomach. Um, the studies so far show a pretty good side effect profile. It's not systemically absorbed. And the idea is that it will help uh, with satiety, uh, feeling full, so that uh, patients are able to be more successful with their caloric restriction. Um, mm -hmm. I don't have cost data on that medication. Um, I was curious if you guys are getting that in Canada or if you've heard anything about that. Not that I've heard, and we're generally at least, well, multiple years behind you guys. So it, if we do, it'll probably be quite a while, while away. So have you tried it yet with anybody or? No, it's actually not out on the market yet. It's just um, yeah, but that's something that's coming down the pipeline. Um, there is also now an oral um, form of the GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, Ozempic. There, so that's semaglutide is the drug name. We do have an oral version of it now. Um, I have not prescribed that yet, but um, it is available and I'm hearing that there's improving insurance coverage for that. But again, that's not approved as an anti-obesity medication. It is approved for um, type 2 diabetes. Okay. But that will hopefully drive down the cost, perhaps, for the injectable versions. Yeah. Yeah, which would be nice for you guys. Okay, so we've run through kind of each of them. Um, I think it's worthwhile talking a little bit about, like, responders versus non-responders for individual medications because not every medication helps every person that tries it I think is an important piece right that's that's very true so um, what we do in practice is when we start a medication and there will be that potential ramp up period during uh, certain medications like Contrave or Kisimia where we have a stepwise approach to increasing the dose um, and even for medications like liraglutide um, we typically start at a low dose and then work our way up to the to the maximal dose. So there is that time period. But typically, um, over three months, if you don't see a three to five percent decrease in uh, body weight, then we need to stop that medication and then try an alternative medication. Um, so that's typically the, uh, you know, guideline that we will follow. And, you know, typically patients, maybe even before that, will tell me if they're really not uh, feeling any, uh, you know, improvement. And, and during that time is our time period to try to, uh, as tolerated, um, based on, you know, any potential side effects, to get a person to the maximal dose mm -hmm. um, within that uh, three-month period. And if we don't see a three to five percent decrease, then we need to look at an, all, an alternative medication. Is that what you guys do in your practice? Yeah, same. We're just, the number of alternative medications are, you know, so limited, right? That, but that's the same approach. Like if you don't tolerate it or if you don't see the five percent weight loss, then you switch. Um, yeah. So if just to kind of bring it back to people who are um, like physicians that are thinking about this for themselves, if they're listening and they're thinking, okay, yeah, maybe a medication might be a good tool to add to what I'm doing for myself. Do you have any recommendations for how they go about getting um, access to the medications and appropriate care and things like that? Yes. So I think that um, a discussion with uh, whoever you're seeing as far as your primary care physician could be at least the first line. Um, I will say that, you know, the field of treatment of overweight and obesity, it's kind of an, in its early phase and not everybody is going to be um, 
equally equipped. And so I find that um, in just discussions with other physicians who've gone through this, that a lot of times they won't get the information that they need from their doctor, but that's at least a place to start. Um, the Obesity Medicine Association is a great resource if you are someone who is um, struggling with these problems and looking for someone who can provide evidence-based treatment and use of these medications. They have a directory where you can find someone local to your area who could prescribe these medications and have this discussion and nuanced approach to really find what's going to work for you given your medical issues, um, side effect profiles, and really work with you to find the one that's going to work for you best. Um, in my practice, I also think it's really important to uh, find a physician and a program that's really going to treat you as a whole person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's um, a lot of different things out there in this uh, particular area of medicine, and a lot of them are not necessarily uh, being uh, run by a person who is uh, going to uh, prescribe all the medications. I find there's a lot of clinics that will say they're a medical weight loss clinic and maybe they're just using fentramine alone and then they have kind of a uh, program that everyone does. Um, but I think that to get a effective approach that's going to be science-based but also give you the nutrition uh, guidelines and the full um, kind of approach of treating you as a whole person and really taking into account lifestyle and you know the things that we didn't talk about today, but I know you speak about in your podcast about the importance of mindset and sleep mm -hmm. and habits and behaviors and environment. And really all those things have to be optimized in the setting of sound use of medications. Um, it's really important to find somebody who specializes in, in, um, in obesity medicine so that you're getting all those things. Yeah, and I agree. And I think the process in Canada would be similar. Just the difference is I think we, obesity medicine is kind of even newer in Canada than it is for you guys in the States. So there's fewer of us that are certified. It's growing every year. Um, so it might be harder to find somebody who actually has obesity medicine certification, but talking to your, your regular physician and yes. bringing in, you know, what information you have and stuff probably can be helpful because for, for some physicians, which you kind of alluded to, somebody coming in asking for some of these medications, it may be a brand new medication for them. Like some physicians might not have had experience prescribing it, um, which uh, if you, if you're going in as a physician who's thinking about it for yourself, if you can bring some information, it might actually help the conversation a little bit. That's a great point. I think that um, it, because as a physician, you're in a unique position to be able to bring um, that, that, that information and that evidence and to maybe it's a teaching point for your physician who may not be aware of the fact that, you know, we do treat these conditions now as a chronic medical issue. And there really is data and evidence behind these treatments. And perhaps they would be willing then to partner and, uh, and try some of these solutions. Mm -hmm. And I think like what you were talking about earlier brings us back to where we originally started in this conversation is that the medications can be a really good tool and it's important to look at them in like a tool, not as a failure or something, which I think often people do think if I need a medication, I must not be, you know, if, if we're in the classic mindset about, weight loss, I must not be eating less and exercising more enough if I need a medication. And I think it's really important as much as possible to have the conversations to take that bias down and view it as the chronic disease that it is. Um, and then view, like you said, view it as a tool, but it's not the only tool. And I've seen that a lot in my practice, and I'm sure you have too, where we try the medication, but if those other things aren't in place, sometimes the medication doesn't have the effects that we want because it's, you know, that helps that piece of the puzzle, but there's other pieces of the puzzle that are contributing to the issue. That's right. I, I agree with that. It's just one tool. It's not an easy way out. It's not, 
a failure. It's just one tool that's going to affect the physiology and the pathophysiology and all the things that we're, uh, you know, talking about as far as set point and, um, you know, those, those things are not in our control. Mm -hmm. And so really looking at it as a medical condition, we don't blame people for other medical conditions. Totally. And so, yes, there is the component that's in our control, but there's a lot of drivers, of course, to eating and that's outside the scope of our discussion today, but to be able to really kind of take that off of ourselves and, um, and just looking at ourselves as, okay, this is one piece of the puzzle. Um, that will help me get to where I want to be to improve my health. Absolutely. And, um, and it's not um, anything to uh, be ashamed of. And it's just one tool. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me to talk about the anti-obesity medications. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion. And where can people find you? Sure. So I'm located in the suburbs of Dallas. If you're ever local, I'm here in Frisco, Texas. Um, they can find me on my website, which is uh, www.radianthealthdallas.com. I'm also very active on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. It's at Richa Mithel, MD. And I do have a blog on my website as well. And I uh, always have a lot of interesting articles. And I also share recipes on there for um, healthy living. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. All right. That was packed with information. And I really like, you know, the opportunity to sit and talk to another obesity medicine physician and just hear her experience and her practical tips. Um, I think that's really useful compared to if you're just looking it up on say up to date or something. Uh, let me know uh, what your thoughts are. In particular, I was thinking this episode is very like Canada and US focused, but if you're listening in a different country and have different access to medications, uh, send me an email. I'd be just interested and curious to hear what your experience and access is like. Uh, info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening so that you get every new episode as soon as it comes out. And if you could share this podcast with somebody that you think would benefit from it or who might be interested in listening to it, I absolutely appreciate that. Thank you to everyone who's taken the time to leave a review. I know that takes time out of your day and I absolutely appreciate the fact that you've done that for me. They make a really big difference. And I really appreciate getting the feedback on what you're finding useful in the podcast too. All right. Have a fantastic week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you later. And now for a quick disclaimer, this podcast contains general education information on weight loss for physicians. I'm not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing.